0: the sublime, the beautiful, and the picturesque. I want to begin our study with an exploration of a few philosophical concepts that might seem abstract. However, I think it is worthwhile to spend some time with these concepts because they will provide an aesthetic framework that is helpful in understanding some of the key texts of the Romantic period. The notions of sublimity are central to some of the texts that we'll read, such as those by Shelley, that we will look at shortly. Let's start with some definitions from the Oxford English Dictionary. The OED, as it's fondly called by scholars, is a unique dictionary of more than 20 printed volumes. The OED is an historical dictionary, Unlike typical dictionaries, it provides not just the definitions of words, but shows how these definitions changed over time, and provides quotations from published works of the earliest known examples of each meaning of a word. Here are the relevant definitions of the sublime, the beautiful, and the picturesque from the OED. Sublime. This is definition number seven of things in nature and art, affecting the mind with a sense of overwhelming grandeur or irresistible power, calculated to inspire awe, deep reverence, or lofty emotion by reason of its beauty, vastness, or grandeur. Did you get that? Let me repeat it because it's very important. Affecting the mind with a sense of overwhelming grandeur or irresistible power, calculated to inspire awe, deep reverence, or lofty emotion by reason of its beauty, vastness, or grandeur. The definition for beautiful, and this is the first one, excelling in grace of form, charm of coloring, and other qualities which delight the eye and call forth admiration. And the definition for picturesque, 1. Like or having the elements of a picture, fit to be the subject of a striking or effective picture, possessing pleasing and interesting qualities of form and color, but not implying the highest beauty or sublimity. Set of landscape, buildings, costumes, scenes of diversified action, etc., also of circumstances, situations, fancies, ideas, and the like. B. Picturesque gardening, the arrangement of a garden so as to make it a pretty picture, the romantic style of gardening aiming at irregular and rugged beauty. End of quote. Note that this style of gardening is not the example that we sometimes see of those orderly, geometric English gardens of the 18th century. This style is irregular and rugged, what we might consider more natural, Notice too that picturesque is not in the same league as sublime. The picturesque does not have the overwhelming grandeur that characterizes the sublime. Edmund Burke is one of the most influential writers of the late 18th century, and he published a book length study of these concepts in 1757 a philosophical enquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful. Burke set out to do a kind of Aristotelian analysis of the characteristics of the sublime and the beautiful. Some of the things associated with the experience of the sublime, according to Burke, are vastness, infinity, terror, and obscurity. Note the association with terror. Early on, Burke states that the sublime is, quote, productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling, end quote. This quotation is significant and provides a good shorthand for thinking about the concept of the sublime. This is why Burke, along with others, associated the sublime with terror, which might seem strange to us. But remember that terror is an especially strong emotion and in its grip one can think of very little else. So let's look at some passages from Burke on the Sublime. First, from Section 7. Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite the ideas of pain and danger, that is to say, whatever is in any sort terrible, or is conversant about terrible objects, or operates in a matter analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. That is, it is productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. I say the strongest emotion because I am satisfied the ideas of pain are much more powerful than those which enter on the part of pleasure. End of quote. A little later, in a section entitled Of the Passion Caused by the Sublime, he writes, The passion caused by the great and sublime in nature, when those causes operate most powerfully, is astonishment. And astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its emotions are suspended with some degree of horror. In this case, the mind is so entirely filled with its object that it cannot entertain any other, nor by consequence, reason on that object which employs it. Hence arises the great power of the sublime that, far from being produced by them, it anticipates our reasonings and hurries us on by an irresistible force. Astonishment, as I have said, is the effect of the sublime in its highest degree. The inferior affects our admiration, reverence, and respect. End of quote. In the following section, he writes of terror. No passion so effectually robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. For fear, being an apprehension of pain or death, it operates in a manner that resembles actual pain. Whatever, therefore, is terrible with regard to sight is sublime, too. Quote. And he goes further in a section on obscurity. He writes that, to make anything very terrible, obscurity seems, in general, to be necessary. When we know the full extent of any danger, when we can accustom our eyes to it, a great deal of the apprehension vanishes. End of quote. This is an important point because some of the writers of this period distinguished between terror and horror. When we do not fully see something that is frightening, it can be more terrifying than the graphic horror that we often see in some of today's horror films. An excellent example of this is the famous shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's film Psycho, where Janet Leigh's character is stabbed in the shower. We never see the knife strike her or see her bleeding, but our mind fills in many of the missing details, and the result is even more terrifying. This is exactly the sort of thing that Burke is writing about. Burke also writes that greatness of dimension is a powerful cause of the sublime. Burke goes on to distinguish the sublime from the beautiful. Burke compares the sublime and the beautiful this way. For sublime objects are vast in their dimensions, beautiful ones comparatively small. Beauty should be smoothed. And polished, the great, rugged, and negligent. Beauty should shun the right line, yet deviate from it insensibly. The great, in many cases, loves the right line, and when it deviates, it often makes a strong deviation. Beauty should not be obscure. The great ought to be dark and gloomy. Beauty should be light and delicate. The great ought to be solid and even massive. Now, we could express this distinction he's drawing here in a little table by setting up two columns. And under sublime, we would see vast, rugged, deviation strong, and by that he means irregularity, dark and gloomy. And under beautiful, we would see small, smooth, little de- deviation from the right line, that is, little irregularity, and light and delicate. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant was among those Germans who were very influential to the Romantics, particularly Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who popularized him in England. In The Critique of Judgment, Kant says, we call that sublime, which is absolutely great and The sublime is that in comparison with which everything else is small. But he goes on to say that the sublime is not to be sought in the things of nature, but only in our our ideas. Consequently, it is the state of mind produced by a certain representation with which the reflective judgment is occupied and not the object that is to be called sublime, end of quote. As we'll see later, this is a concept that Wordsworth is going to pick up on when he speaks of poetry as the overflow of a powerful emotion. But then he goes on to say that this emotion is recollected in tranquility. In a vivid and memorable passage, Kant gives an example of the sublime. Quote, bold, overhanging, and as it were, threatening, rocks, hot clouds piled up in the sky, moving with lightning flashes and thunder peals, volcanoes in all their violence of destruction, hurricanes with their track of devastation, the boundless ocean in a state of tumult, the lofty waterfall of a mighty river, and such like. These exhibit our faculty of resistance as insignificantly small in comparison with their might. But the sight of them is the more attractive, the more fearful it is, provided only that we are in security, and we readily call these objects sublime because they raise the energies of the soul above their accustomed height. Here we see this notion, similar to what Burke expressed, that this awesomeness and grandeur, as well as fear and terror, take us outside ourselves and put us in an awestruck state. Let's turn now to William Gilpin, where Burke distinguishes between the sublime and the beautiful. Gilpin does so between the beautiful and the picturesque. Gilpin was a renowned traveler, and travel books were very popular during this period. Some seasoned travelers used brown-tinted mirrors or various-tinted glasses to carefully compose their views of a scene so that they would experience the full effect of the picturesque. According to Gilpin, beauty is associated with smoothness and neatness. This is consistent with Burke's conception. The picturesque for Gilpin is often the rough and rugged, the wild and unbounded, and in fact there is a great fascination with ruins during this period, influencing, among other things, landscape design. Ruins were so picturesque that people who didn't have them often imported or even fabricated them. Gilpin even extends this aesthetic to faces. He suggests that aged, wrinkled faces are more picturesque. Wrinkles suggest dignity, wisdom, experience, and roughness. I hope this introduction to the sublime, the beautiful, and the picturesque will be helpful as we examine some of the poetry of the Romantic period. One excellent example of the concept of the sublime occurs in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's famous poem, Kubla Khan, particularly in the middle section of the poem where we see this wild, demonic, energetic, and sexual imagery that is associated with the imagination. Coleridge describes that deep romantic chasm as a savage and haunted place, and even the reference to the holy dread that others would feel toward him as a poet if only he were able to capture the scene in his dream as he had imagined it. This idea of the poet being regarded as some sort of supernatural being whom they would dread expresses this romantic idea of the sublime. An even better example of the sublime is Percy Shelley's poem, Mont Blanc, and we will take that up next time.